Hi, I'm Jonas Dupuy. Welcome to another episode of the Bonsai Wire podcast. Today, I will be speaking with co-host Michael Hagedorn about his recent book, Bonsai Heresy. Hello, Michael. Hello, hello. Hi. Great to be here. Are you ready to talk about bonsai today? I am. Bonsai today. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Maybe even a bit of bonsai tonight. And that yes. will be a little bit of foreshadowing for some later <laughs> <Yes>. topics. <laughs> right, right. What right. I was hoping this is a double do. header. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're interviewing Jonas tomorrow morning. I am interviewing Jonas tomorrow morning about his book, The Little Book of Bonsai. So the Little Book of Bonsai Heresy. We'll have it all figured out at some point. And so what I wanted to start with is talk about some of the topics that come up in your book as I was lucky enough to read some early drafts of the book and was delighted to see how much improvement it continued to go through by the time it finally came out. It is just a spectacular read and highly recommended for people at pretty much every stage of their bonsai journey. And uh, the questions that came up while I was going through it, a lot of them are just personal questions that I have that you might be able to help with. Others are ideas that really struck me as I uh, was going through it again recently. Yeah, sounds great. I wanted to start by asking, uh, could you tell me about how time-tested anecdotal evidence informs our bonsai practice? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, I, I, uh, it, it took a, a long time for me to realize that that was actually going on, but, but uh, the anecdotal evidence uh, is actually the, the tradition of bonsai. Um, and science is the thing that came much later uh, to support or, or in some cases to deny um, what was going on uh, within the tradition. So, so with anecdote, we're, we're, it, it's, it's a trial and error kind of uh, exercise. And um, this is a, a, a process that is familiar to any sort of non-scientific <laughs> adventure um, that, that, that involves things in, in the real world. Um, so uh, um, with bonsai tradition, a great example is black pine decandling. Uh, this was uh, sort of a, um, a, a, um, a, a, not a mistake, but rather sort of a, a caterpillar accident that happened uh, uh, many years ago. Um, and and it, it, it turned into something um, that became a, a deeply embedded part of bonsai tradition. And Jonas played a really huge role in sleuthing out the timing of that because myself and others in the bonsai community thought that black paint decandling was more recent than what we actually discovered. Um, and, and you, uh, Jonas, you had a book that had Suzuki, Sachi Suzuki writing about his discovery of this. And it was back in the thirties, right? It was like, yeah, I think it was 37, 38, something 38. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Which was decades before I had ever heard that, that this was created. So there were, there were a lot of discoveries <laughs> in writing this book, but that's an example of, of uh, sort of the anecdotal nature. So this ended up being something that Suzuki was, um, and this is not my teacher, this is Sachi Suzuki, not Shinji Suzuki. So this is different, different generation, two generations before. Um, uh, he, he observed a caterpillar nibbling the candle of uh, the black pine uh, as it was growing in the spring. And he discovered that uh, the, the tree regrow, uh, regrew summer shoots. And so he pondered that. And the next year he cut them at different times of the year. He took several trees and he discovered he can control 
the candle length and the needle length by uh, the date at which he had cut. And it started a revolution in black pine technique. Um, and he shared that with his friends and that became embedded into bonsai tradition. That's a, maybe the clearest example um, uh, or one that many of us uh, are familiar with, cutting the candles on our black pines, of, of how the anecdotal tradition works. Now, no scientific experiment was done. These were, um, these were just little tests uh, done in the backyard. Science is a very particular thing, right? It, it has several steps to it. Uh, and the last one is replication. Um, and that one is mirrored in anecdotal uh, evidence. Um, and, uh, and yet, uh, anecdote is not really um, sufficient enough if you are a scientist, <laughs> which my father was. So I have a little bit of uh, surrounding background uh, with science. I, I, I didn't have uh, much uh, personal experience with, with, with science, but I, I often felt like I was raised by his colleagues <laughs> in this sort of, sort of bubble, and it certainly informed my uh, uh, sort of worldview and, and connection with nature. I was a birder since I was 10 years old, and that came from one of his colleagues, actually. Yeah. So anyway, that was a long-winded answer to uh, <laughs> the first question. <laughs> well, and it, it what always strikes me is I, it's, I've always wondered, do I want to suggest that the opposite of science is anecdote? Because when we talk about the anecdotal tradition, it's far more replicable than, you know, an anecdote might be telling yeah. me what I had for lunch and how the server spilled the food all over the table and I had to change <laughs> before going to a meeting. That's an anecdote. And right. that's not the kind a of thing story. we're basing our, um, right. our bonsai practice on. And so it feels very scientific. However, it's not that everything we're doing is... Um, that's right. That's yeah, right. We, we don't begin with hypotheses every time we water. Well, let's see what happens if I right. water my tree today. But right. it's, it's, so it's this funny <laughs> thing where anecdote doesn't seem to have the carry the weight. And so I've, I've always looked for what's a good turn, term beyond tradition yeah. or anecdote that kind of describes the care with which and the strength of the replicability of the people whose uh, cues we follow and that guide our own experimentations or tests as we look to learn, you know, oh, wow. whatever's next. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Anecdote is a, it's almost a clumsy term. Um, if, uh, as another example, um, the Chinese um, uh, never had the scientific method back in, in antiquity. Um, and yet their methods of investigation that did not include this several step process of the scientific method ended up inventing many of the things that we're really, really familiar with. Um, and, um, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Um, and, uh, and yet um, it, it's, it's actually surprised some scholars that they, that they weren't the ones to come up with the scientific method <laughs> being uh, uh, Europeans. Yeah, it's funny. There are very effective <laughs> ways of being practical that aren't necessarily following yes. the scientific method. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's a very narrow band of investigation. It's a powerful one. Um, but it's also, it's, it, it has a, a kind of a wonderful flexibility to it, it, it in built uh, built in to it, uh, which is that uh, it's it's not really an investigation into like ultimate truth or anything, because it's yeah. it's uh, it, it assumes um, in, in its methodology 
that it's only partway there. That, um, that, that, um, that an experiment is one sliver of a bigger, bigger piece of the puzzle and it kind of leads you to, the, to a possible good next question. Um, and so in that sense, you can't take it, you know, as if it was sort of this written in stone sort of thing, because science isn't that either. <laughs> I had uh, uh, a uh, student of mine, a uh, dentist, uh, read Bones of Heresy, and he wrote me a note. Um, and he said, this reminds me of the first year that I was in dental school. And our first professor, there was this huge classroom, and everybody was sitting there with bated breath, and this, this professor said, 50% of what you learn in the next few years will be untrue. The problem is I have no idea what 50% that is. And, and that really shows off a lot of what, <laughs> what so, so that was the medical field, but, but you know, it's based on science really. So, uh, and results from science. So, um, uh, that, you know, you know, that, We'll, we'll probably end up in a revision of bonsai heresy because uh, a, a chunk of it, I don't know, maybe 25% of it is, is uh, uh, weighs in with, with scientific uh, studies, those that we do have, um, which relate to things like physiology um, and uh, soils and things that, um, that, uh, that are actually really, really interesting, hormones and things of that nature, um, how fertilizers affect crops and things like that. These are, some of these things are really, really well studied, um, but how, but, but it sort of informs bonsai technique rather than creates bonsai technique. Um, uh, interestingly, many of the things that are used or assumed in bonsai um, technique from the tradition uh, we're actually ahead of some of the scientific knowledge. Um, so the information around how sugars move around in relation to how hormones move around um, has only recently and fairly heretically been proposed in the scientific communities that sugar is actually a more powerful indicator of where a tree is going to grow than previously thought hormones. So, so there's some, and that's a whole big deep hole of it. We don't have to get into, but, <laughs> but really interesting kinds of things that um, uh, some of the, you know, some of the partial defoliation, trimming a leaf in half, um, dampens the sugar production in one area and and kind of uh, balances the sugar production with a weaker area. I mean, this is this is what is now considered to be a really powerful uh, predictor of plant growth. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but that came from the tradition, you know, the tradition was decades ahead of, uh, of, uh, physiology, uh, thought. So anyway, one example. I think <laughs> you're kind of getting it. One thing that can make the tradition so effective is science is one approach. Like I've always thought of it just as you mm. described, it's less about providing answers than providing us with an approach to finding answers. And it's what's wonderful about the That's approach well is it, it can be mm -hmm. equally critical of itself as well as whatever it's producing along the way. There's a lot of power in that. There is. Um, and it, yeah. it reminds me of something else you said. I heard a great quote recently, and I'll have to look up who it was from. It was actually an interview with a guy who was quoting his grandfather. And mm -hmm. it was something like, we start with a perspective, we learn some things, and we end with a perspective. And the hope is that uh, the perspective we end with is more accurate than the perspective we started with. Mm. And so it's less yeah. about being right or wrong or finding truth yes. and more about yeah. how right, can right. we 
guide ourselves toward accuracy along the way. And whether following tradition or the scientific right. method, both get us right. toward that right. same end. Right, right, right. And and for me, it was it was interesting to have this background because I I forgot about it for decades. I mean, having this uh, oh, sort wow. of grow, growing up around uh, around scientists, and uh, and although I did have a biology minor in college, it, it was never really a direction for me. I was an artist, which. Um, uh, creation is more like witchcraft. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's an entirely different uh, thing. Uh, although there is a lot of creativity in some of the, you know, really beautiful kinds of experiments um, uh, that uh, that come out of science. So there, there's a link there. And yet, what I was doing was entirely different. It was only after getting deep into bonsai and particularly running my own bonsai garden that I started to dip back into sort of my roots um, and back into uh, science and uh, trying to figure out why things were not working in my backyard <laughs> and doing some kind of citizen science experiments in my backyard um, and realizing what the difference was between a citizen science experiment and something that would happen in a lab and would be uh, good enough uh, <laughs> to be published. And, you know, there's a big difference there. Um, but, uh, but I definitely went in a, in a very different direction um, and, um, the, this book was uh, it, it, that part was fun. We'll talk later. I think you did have a question about why <laughs> why writing is difficult, but the real fun part of this <laughs> uh, was uh, what, what, what was kind of melding uh, something in in deep past for me with with what I'm doing in the present. That's really cool. I wish I'd grown up with that, which is funny because I grew up with a, in a nursery mm -hmm. household. So if not with science, then with the, the yeah. brute fact of having plants around and having to keep plants healthy as just right. my starting point for engaging with things in the broader world, which was fun. But I did spend a number of years yeah. in academic publishing, working with scientists. And by far the most fun part of that right. work was always interacting with the actual researchers themselves on how they come up with better questions and how they share that with the world. Yeah. That was kind of what my role in that was. And it was a ton mm -hmm. of fun. And so mm -hmm. it, it's, mm -hmm. I've always found the whole mm -hmm. concept or approach to sharing the results of experimentation as just a really comforting idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a community of um, of discoveries um, and uh, inclinations uh, uh, toward uh, discovery um, that uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun to be a part of. I, I didn't know that about you. I didn't know you were working with science uh, uh, and the results and the people who, who, who were working within science so directly. Oh, I got really lucky yeah. in that we had a number of PhDs yeah. on staff. Uh, they were mm -hmm. the editorial staff. And ah. I often got to work with the editorial staff who would say, oh, we want to be able to share things this way, or we want to be able to yeah. Uh, yeah. make it easier for people to interact with the, what they're publishing in this other way. And so that's, <laughs> that's, we would go into the specific examples and they would share their anecdotes about how these crazy projects were coming together. Plus I got to interview actually both of the publishers I work for. I got to do these big projects where I actually mm. got to interview a lot of different researchers to ask them about the entire publishing process and how they share the information that they need to participate in their disciplines. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. Which was fascinating. Be, it was just so much fun. I bet. I bet. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I bet. Yeah. Well, thanks so much yeah. for joining us on this today's episode of Philosophy Today. That was a fascinating conversation. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, yeah, we're, we're all fans of Star Talk, uh, by the way. <laughs> it's exactly. Just, it's a really interesting podcast. Um, I mean, I've been joking with uh, our three other members of uh, Bonsai Wire. Um, it, it, because I, I'm not really a podcast listener. I've heard maybe six podcasts and <laughs> maybe less than 20 total. So it, it's a little bit ironic that I'm actually a member of one or, or <laughs> partly running one. <laughs> um, but it is a fun medium. <laughs> Enjoying it. Oh, it's been fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this was your idea originally, wasn't it? Um, Jonas? Yeah, I, I kind of snuck it into a conversation yeah. that Andrew and I had been Andrew, having, yeah, and then yeah. we included <laughs> you in that. And it's like, yeah, or we could just do it as a podcast. And so that after enough time, it ended up, that's how it popped up. How oh, fun. So <laughs> tell oh. us, tell me about long-term and short-term soil media. Oh, wow. Okay. Total change hole. of pace. We're just going to the hard <laughs> rocks that help. The hard rocks. The, uh, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it, a bonsai heresy starts off with this this puzzle um, of long term and short term soil media, which was the only way I could come up with to describe this. Um, uh, for for years, I was working with uh, nursery soil. Um, components. I shouldn't say soil, it's a media, right? Uh, root media, what's in your pot is the more accurate term. Uh, and then that goes back decades. I've been doing bonsai 35 years. Um, and uh, for at least uh, 20 of those years, <laughs> I was working with, with all kinds of different soil media. Um, and the early ones were the nursery ones. So this, so this is um, uh, heavily in the organic uh, uh, percentage, uh, either peat moss or bark or something like that, um, uh, mixed with uh, something that is usually called drainage, uh, but is a, an aerator. So either something like uh, pumice or um, vermiculite or, or uh, perlite is, is another very common one in the nursery industry. Um, and um, the results that I had was that I had a great one or two years for many things, not all things. Conifer, especially pine, seemed to struggle with that kind of stuff, and I couldn't figure out why. And, um, you know, my, my assumption was whatever they used and, and everything flourished with should work great for what I was doing. But the problem was those soils are designed to grow a tree hard and strong. And the bonsai media are designed to use bonsai technique and to slow a tree down. And that took me decades to figure out the difference between those. In fact, it was only when I started studying with Boone um, there in Alameda at his first house there, and later uh, as an apprentice with Shinji Suzuki, that I had experience with these other methods, which ironically, were the traditional methods. I mean, I had started on the other end. I had started on the, with the radical stuff, you know, the stuff that, that, that were, um, because, you know, there was no Akadama available. They, nobody knew much about, you know, the other stuff that the Japanese were using, which was lava and pumice. I mean, this was all, uh, this was all in a different country. 
these uh, soils um, were, they, they weren't even mythology. We didn't even know they existed. I mean, uh, so when I first started studying with Boone and then uh, with Suzuki, the, um, there was a, a big um, transformation in my, in my thinking about soils because I was able to see for the first time the core of the root ball become dense with fine roots and remain that way for a really, really long time. When I got to Japan, I discovered root balls that had been that the core, the interior, so not the part you're cutting away when you're repotting, but the interior of that mass was viable for decades. And sometimes they never seemed to go in there and do anything. And they, they just shocked my pants off. I mean, I had never seen anything like that. And yet it created this really stable physiological foundation on which the tree could regrow following repotting. Um, and I tried to lay that out in several of the initial chapters of Bonsai Heresy. And I must say that was probably the hardest bit to write about um, because although I had been convinced in my own garden what was going on, I had to dig back and figure out why I was so confused to begin with. <laughs> and I had forgotten uh -huh. it. It was much like forgetting, you know, uh, my, my background in science. So, so anyway, um, that was uh, a, uh, a really challenging part of writing the book. For sure. I know I was lucky in that my very first exposure to bonsai was with, um, you know, I met Boone, which is what kicked it off. But the first organized events I went to were run by Kathy Shainer, who had just come back from Japan. So mm -hmm. I started out on a contemporary Japanese path as I started learning back in 1993. <laughs> that was, you know, 27 you. years ago. And so oh I was able to having grown up in the nursery, I knew the nursery industry as a starting point, but bonsai was always this special thing in quotation marks that was treated this other way. And so mm -hmm. I know that your experience lines up far better with, you know, every other person in the country and how they've learned bonsai. Mm -hmm. But it's, <laughs> it's interesting because I remember the very early days when it was harder to find Akadama or didn't know what Kanuma was at the time. And I would grow azaleas in a mix of half bark and half lava. And I found, wow, it had spectacular results. I could make those azaleas scream out of the pot. It was awesome. But what would those trees have looked like, you know, 5, 10, 15 years later in that mix? I don't know. I know what bark looks like after 15 years. It's kind of a black sludge. And so right. everything right. you're saying about that long-term and short-term, right. both in forms how awkward so many of our soil media discussions are because we're not talking about our goals in why we're using a soil as much as we're talking about, exactly. well, I use this or I want to use that. And I've always loved the idea of let's line up our approaches with the goals. And so <laughs> by even <That's> mentioning <laughs> the topic, of, by giving us chapter two, chapter one, you're talking about, here's how we're going to talk about science and tradition and chapter two is what is this concept of long-term and short-term permanent versus temporary more philosophical ideas that kind of inform the core of what is it that's making bonsai different from these other things we grow in containers or in the ground and that this is a, a great example although we have lots of of, of studies uh, of research about how soil interacts uh, with 
plant growth uh, or, or, or creates uh, plant growth. What we don't have is, is the question that I raise in what is it, chapter three, where we start talking about this inner core and, and longevity. I mean, we don't have any studies about that because scientists are not, are not interested in it. It's, you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't move great economic levers like, uh, like crop uh, production. It's, you know, so, um, so we have to have a little bit of humility around, you know, <laughs> we can't stamp our foot, you know, when we don't have studies that, that represent what we actually want to have, <laughs> have, have, have answered. Um, so, uh, you know, you started talking about bark and, and how that breaks down into a black sludge. And, and this is the second part of the equation and why I was not having success with these nursery soils that, then stay a long time, much longer in a bonsai pot than if you have this uh, yew or pine or azalea that you're going to put in the ground, which is, you know, or maybe a, 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 in a huge, uh, you know, deck container. You know, that's, that's the, the end uh, um, result uh, or, or placement of, of a nursery plant. But a bonsai stays in a bonsai pot indefinitely and so that interior core is is critical because of this black sludge you're talking about if you're using an organic soil it is going to decompose and what the problem that i was having then was that uh, after a few years the roots uh, would primarily be growing around the sides and the bottom. And then I would be reading my books and they say, okay, you cut the sides and the bottom and you're placing the pot. And I would just cut all the roots off the tree and the tree died. So it was actually a combination of two things that didn't work together. One of them was from the tradition, the repotting technique of cutting the sides and the bottom. That is an accurate technique. However, I, we, I was using a different soil. And so were so many other people that didn't create this inner core that would allow the tree to survive such an operation. So it just, it, it, it took me a long time to put that all into words, which is why this is, I, I mean, it sounds simple now that I'm saying it, but it, it was a fight to figure out how to actually say all this. <laughs> uh, but that's how the book begins. And I hope it doesn't turn too many people off because I know we're so married to the, you know, the soils that we use. <laughs> and that's where, you know, later in the book, we talk a little bit about anchoring, uh, which is, um, familiar in, in uh, the medical profession where, where a doctor will um, uh, get a, 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 you know, a prognosis, I hope I'm using the right word, <laughs> um, of, uh, of a problem and then, and then further tests actually lean in a different direction. The doc can't get rid of this, this anchor he has to his first idea. Of, of what he's seeing. And we have that same problem, you know, our, our first initial you know, sort of embryonic experience with soil and you know, many other types of technique, really, uh, we end up being kind of semi-married to those things. And it's really hard to, to give that up. And I think, uh, you know, we're all, we're all hardwired to do that. It's not, um, it's not like we're, we're bad people, <laughs> but, but, but it's, a, it's a function it, 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 and it does function. Yeah, so there's nothing at all to that topic, clearly. Yeah. But no, no, and we couldn't fill out several podcasts just for that one. And you did presage my next question, which was, how can one tell if there are problems in the core of the root ball? Oh, wow. Um, well, obviously, if your tree dies when you repotted it, it, it that, that, that's a clue. Um, but... Um, I, and I only partly jest because that's, that, that is a, that is a, a, a likely um, uh, clue, <laughs> but, but 
the inner core is a tricky zone um, because even in the best situation, so you have a porous uh, volcanic uh, media, which is what the Japanese media is primarily, Akadama pumice lava. Um, and some people don't use the lava at all. That's a different part of a conversation maybe. Deciduous trees don't don't care for lava that much, so, but we can talk about that later. In any event, this core, if it's packed full of roots, it's gonna dry out. So if it's drying out, it can also get bone dry. So if it gets bone dry, then when you water your tree, it can look dry 15 minutes later and you can think you're losing your mind, but it's actually that the core that it is so active with roots that you can end up um, inadvertently drying out the inner core uh, having spent so much try time uh, um, trying to activate the density of it with fine roots, you can end up with parts of it dying because of uh, lack of moisture on the interior, and then you get root rot. So, uh, so being sure that the inner core is hydrated is super important. Um, and uh, one of those clues is, is whether it's drying out in, in, in a predictable, you know, takes a day to dry out or something. That, that would assume that that inner core is being hydrated. But on the other hand, if it dries out in a few minutes uh, on a warm day, that's a clue that there might be some problem in the inner core. And there, had... there are other problems as well, but that is one that came to mind. Oh, yeah. I had an oak tree that dried out way faster than I ever would have expected for how little foliage it had on it. It did just what you mm -hmm. described. And I was watering it every day and it kept drying out. And after watering it one time, and by watering it, this is filling up the pot three times with water and watching it with my eyes drained down. And then I scratched below the surface and it was dry, not that far yeah. down at all. I yes. took a screwdriver, poked holes in the root yes. ball, watered <laughs> it. Tool. It didn't dry out for four days. <laughs> and that was the normal periodicity for watering was about every four right. days at the time for that tree. Right, right. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, any soil um, can, can kind of create this hydrophobia that we're talking about. Um, although some soils, even if they aren't dense, like we're talking about that inner core, if, if they're completely loose, if you've just potted your tree, there's some soils that can create this scrape the surface and underneath is bone dry situation. And one of the worst of those are, are the fired clay products that are kind of flattish. Um, Turfus is, is one of those. Um, that, that's a terrifying experience. You just potted your tree up, you water it, you know, you can stand there for five minutes watering this thing. And then you scra scratch the surface and it's bone dry underneath. Um, try that. If, if you're using that product, give, give, it, give it a whirl. Um, it, it, almost the only way to actually hydrate that is, is from the bottom up, the first time that you water. Um, mm -hmm. And then um, help us if that ever dries out completely because then that, that'll continue to be kind of hydrophobic. So there are some particles that have uh, more problem. Uh, uh, particles that aren't flat is, is a good clue. Something that, that isn't necessarily round but is at least irregular uh, helps as uh, many of the um, volcanic particles are. Um, yeah, but that, that's, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that one because that's a, that, that, that's a serious issue. Um, it can happen with organic soils as well, but it's, it's less, less likely for them. And then we've, we've been banging organic pretty hard here. Um, and, and I don't, 
mean to, uh, <laughs> because we're assuming we're talking about bonsai in pots. So, we're, so we're, we're, if not a developed tree, if not a mature tree, we're on our way. But if you're growing trees, if you enjoy working on what we call pre-bonsai or something that you're growing a trunk or uh, developing branch uh, uh, taper and things of this nature, you might well want to use an organic based soil um, as I do, I, I use one uh, in what I call the back 40, which are all of these trees that are kind of on the way to find out. They're nowhere near a bonsai pot yet. And they will grow a stronger, uh, more, um, uh, uh, more uh, not healthy, but, uh, but a, a more physiologically active, uh, charging ahead <laughs> kind of plant than if you use the volcanic media. They hold... Uh, more moisture, they hold more nutrition, and they have enough air in them. So in a nursery pot, using soils uh, like bark and pumice and things of this nature, or perlite, can be incredible. You can have amazing results. So I, I don't use expensive imported soils from Japan to grow plants on. And the interesting question would be is, if we continue to use that soil throughout a tree's life, we might be able to keep it alive for just as long, but it might be a different story if we want to facilitate the characteristics that we most prize in older mature bonsai, the shorter yeah. internodes, the smaller leaves, the exactly. very slow growth without which it's impossible mm -hmm. to get the characteristics that at least some people prize in bonsai. Right, right. Yeah. If, if, if our goals are to keep something alive and healthy and growing strongly, there's a million soil media you can use. Um, but these short internodes that, that you just mentioned and, and uh, bark um, <laughs> is, is, is a, um, a feature of age. And if we're growing a tree hard, we're going to flake bark off. The tree is going to look young. If you take an old bonsai, um, a 200-year-old pine, and you put it in the ground, from two feet, it's going to shoot up to 65 feet. It's going to lose all its bark. And, you know, I mean, they, 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 they don't deal with age the same way that we do. <laughs> they can kind of become young again. And we can, uh, if, if we or choose our soils and mismanage our fertilizing, or even and to some degree our watering, we, we can completely transform an old tree into a young one. Uh, but we can also go the other way. And by careful choices, um, we can enhance the characteristics of age. Well, tell us more about that, because that topic comes up a lot in the book, and it doesn't get a full description. Mm -hmm. And that is, it'll make our tree look young, or it'll make it grow like a young tree. And so what Sure. Yeah. Not everyone might be familiar with the concept of what we mean when we're saying a bonsai, it no longer looks like an old tree. It's like, well, what do you mean? The trunk's still eight inches across and there's right. all this great deadwood. It looks, how can it not look like an old tree? Yeah, great conversation. Uh, we tend to equate, you know, thickness with age. And yet a bunjin is assumed to be an old tree. So it has this, what I think is a fascinating um, kind of contradiction between a thin trunk tree and, and, and yet it has craggy bark on it. So Usually we think of a thick trunk tree and we, uh, we gravitate to the thick trunk tree because it indicates age. And yet, if you have a plant, just to make one example, that's just come out of the ground, it might well have a 10 inch trunk uh, pine, and yet it, it, it might not have even lost its uh, what's called first bark. 
so bark on a pine has several different characteristics. The first is a is is it's cracking off the smooth part that it had, you know, when it was really quite young. And underneath that is bark that is striated uh, vertically, and that's your mature bark. Um, uh, and yet to to create that, <laughs> we have to be sure that uh, that we're not over fertilizing. So if um, if you give a plant a lot of root run, or if you repot too frequently, if you use too much fertilizer, you can create a very, very active cambium layer. And that active cambium layer is going to create a lot of phloem. It's going to, it's going to create a really large vascular transport system. And if you do that, you're going to crack any bark off that you have, including, if you have it, any of the second bark, the old looking bark. Um, uh, the things that we want on a mature bonsai. Uh, so so we're, so we're ageist is what you're saying. <laughs> oh, that's terrible, Jonas. I can't believe you said that on a, on a podcast. <laughs> I have yeah, a, I uh, guess we are. I think you're right. <laughs> I have a ponderosa pine that I've hardly fertilized it this year, but I've been watering mm -hmm. it and I gave it really good mm -hmm. soil for the first time. And mm -hmm. I've got these giant yellow orange cracks in between the older plates of bark because the yeah. thing, mm -hmm. apparently ponderosa pines can grow really vigorously in the Bay area. Yeah. And yeah, it's behaving like a young yeah. tree, longer inner nodes. And I needed to get it healthy. It was in really bad shape and had almost no roots before. But now it's like, right, right. okay, I never need you to grow that fast ever again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yes, yes. The, um, the pine is one example, but uh, the same thing could happen with a spruce, um, could happen... And we're ignoring deciduous trees, which are the most it's obvious example. Probably, as soon as you get a single long inner node, right, I was right. I was at the Kokofu show this year, and I got to see one of the top masters, uh, Takayama, for deciduous trees, and he had a couple awesome items in the show, and I could not help but notice some really strong growth near the tops of these amazing old trident maple groves. Yeah. And that yeah. just tells yeah. you how hard it is to rein in the growth on yes. a healthy tree. I mean, this was a spectacular Absolutely. three foot tall, yeah. huge grove of trident maples. And yeah, yeah, the yeah. growth was borderline unacceptably coarse up near the top. Right, right. And this was um, something I uh, did just segues into a, a conversation I had with uh, my friend Gary Wood recently, who's done a lot of pondering about bonsai and physiology. Um, and one thing he has noted is that if a bonsai is in a pot so long and you apply good bonsai technique to them, you're, you're creating these really short internodes and that cambium layer and the phloem layer are getting thinner and thinner and thinner and we're, you know, everything's looking amazing and we're loving it and the ramification is crazy. Um, and the, the problem then is that it can get slowed down so far that then it, doesn't quite have enough energy to support <laughs> what it has. And then you kind of need to give it a little break for a little bit. <laughs> so, um, and, and so there, there might even be years and there are very few, I mean, I don't, I don't have any trees really like this uh, in my backyard yet. They're not uh, developed enough, but in Japan, there are years when you give a tree a, just a hair of a break and, and you might let slip some of these things that we're encouraging you to do in order to grow your tree just a little bit harder. 
and then back it off again the next year. Uh, but, um, but for the most part, I, I think uh, to go back to pines, ponderosa, uh, for instance, some of the single flush plants, ponderosa, Japanese maple, another single flush plant. Um, there's several others uh, in the deciduous camp, but these plants, uh, many uh, Westerners, I feel, fertilize far too much once they're in a, in a bonsai pot so that you get long needles on the, uh, on the pines, uh, the single flush pines, you get really long internodes on the Japanese maples, and there's no way to control this. Uh, and we begin to have youthful, youthful characteristics, and not only that, but we begin to have trouble creating ramification, which is what you get when you begin to slow things down and begin to minimize the size of that, those apical buds on these trees. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a dance it, it, between a whole bunch of variables. And I don't find it easy. Uh, I, I, I think it's really tricky to balance your, your, your environment, your climate, um, your, your fertilizing levels, um, how big a pot you're growing it in. All these things are, are variables that can influence aesthetics. They can, they can influence what our plants look like, whether they look young or whether they look old. And depending on the techniques and the aesthetics you're going for, I, I totally agree. Those are just yeah. super challenging things. If your goal is to produce that highest right. level of refinement, and if your goal is anything right. else, it's almost not even an issue. But if you really are looking yeah. at how do we most adorn the trunks of these spectacular old deciduous trees, it's with that really tightly ramified short internode growth. And that's just super hard. Mm -hmm. I have found one example actually of um, a couple categories of trees that are refined enough in the states that we do need to back off. Um, one is, you know, in California, there's a whole bunch of trees that have been started decades ago and mm -hmm. they've been kept in borderline two small show pots for most mm. of those decades, mm -hmm. they're ready for a break. And mm. that's a lot of different species. They need yes. to grow a little bit. They need to relax. They mm -hmm. need to follow mm -hmm. your trick of putting it in a big box with some pumice around it. Any of those things to mm -hmm. let them oh, stretch out right, a little bit right. and mm -hmm. grow. But there's and the, 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 an, oh, yeah. the, the, I'm sorry, there, there's a, a, a lot of, of power behind growing a tree on your, on your bench, a, a mature bonsai in not a show pot, but a pot that's one or two inches bigger. So it's not the, the box of pumice, which is for a really weak tree or a sick tree or something like that, that I recommend, but it's something that allows this just a little bit of extra physiology. And this is also assuming, uh, I'm sorry, physiological advantage, you know, growing yeah. a little bit stronger. This is assuming that we're not over fertilizing in the spring and whatnot. You know, fall fertilization is really your uh, your important time. It's not that we shouldn't be fertilized during the growing season, but I think most Westerners overdo it, um, and we don't fertilize enough in the fall because the plant in the spring is using uh, minerals that it stored from the fall. It, it it isn't really taking up a lot of minerals in the springtime. It's it's using the stuff it already has in it to push out growth in the spring. That segues into the nitrogen question. <laughs> yeah, I see the Which same thing. I see, in the book. I see far more people bring yeah. in trees to workshops that are too weak to work on, not too strong. Like it's mm. rare that I see trees that are too strong. I mean, it definitely happens regularly, but when everything else is perfect, the tree's old. Yeah. In other words, yeah. by the time you yeah. get everything else lined up, you've probably yeah. dialed right. in the fertilizing a bit. 
Right. And this just shows how difficult it is. I mean, Jonas is seeing things that are too weak and they're either too ramified, they're in too small a pot for too long a time. And I'm, I'm finding people bringing in trees that are Yamadori's that have been collected three years ago and they've been pumped full of fertilizer in a big box. And they're just they're, they're, they're like, you know, teenagers again. Yeah. Um, and uh, balance is hard. <laughs> and so balance is that key yeah. word. So the other time I'm finding a way to back off has only come up with uh, when you do a lot of culture of something like a pine where you have a technique like decandling. So I've joked for years that yeah. one of the miracles of uh, a pine that you can decandle is you get pine math, which is you can double the branches every year. And within four years, every pine one branch, math. yeah, every one branch can turn into 16. You know, the first year it goes to two, then four, eight, 16. Well, very quickly, you can imagine that pot's right. not going to push 798 little branch tips on it. Right. And so right. I have found that it's actually really important when you get to the right density, you need to start doing yeah. quite a lot of cutback and fall to allow the tree to grow if you're going to expect a reasonable response. And I'm already at the yes. point with a lot of trees where, and these are young, not even 20 years old yet, where I'm happy to get one bud per uh, decandled yeah. shoot, or I'm going to need to do yeah. quite a lot of cutback to expect a borderline reasonable response from the tree. Because I've made trees point. too weak, and yeah. uh, I have learned it actually doesn't take that many years of so right. so technique, and you've already maxed out the doubling you can get out of a tree. Yeah, that that is such a critical comment for those who have mature trees. They're they're. It doesn't go to infinity. <laughs> no. the, the, the shoot has to have room to grow. Um, and not only that, there is a limit and it's limited by how many fine small roots can grow in that pot. Yep. That's what supports the top. The tree is going to balance itself. And if it can't do that, if you're forcing it to create more ramification using some of these powerful techniques that we use and that Jonas just talked about with the black pine decandling, um, you're going to double your, your number every time. If it can't support that, it's going to start making its own decisions. It's going to start killing some things off and, or the whole tree will get weak. Um, and that's not what we want. We want to be making the decisions. So, so the clue to this is be really attentive to your fall work because fall work, fall trimming, uh, shoot selection on many different trees. Black pine is a great example. Sets up what happens in the spring. And we have to make enough room for what is gonna show up in the little space of several cubic inches. What, what, what is in this part of the tree? How much foliage can this tree actually support? And that there's a density limit. The really good point that you're making. Yeah, yeah I'm finding black pine just coincidentally turned out to be a fantastic model organism for bonsai. It is, it, it, I you think, learn uh, so much and, and how, how challenging Black pine is and how easy so many other trees are. <laughs> yeah. On the deciduous side, I think Japanese maple is a great model organism because if, if you can learn how to wrangle growth on a Japanese maple, you can pretty much mm. do anything. Yeah. They're hard. They are. You have to they grow it right are. the first time or you don't have it, period. Pretty much most other species, are they have some, <laughs> some bit of forgiveness baked in, but oh, those things are tough. Love it. Love well, it, you it. set up the growth, and again, you brought it back to the soil and the roots. And I'm curious, how many mixes do you think you use in your garden? How many different soil mixes at any given time? Oh, oh, uh, two primary ones. Uh, well, three, if if I count something that I've 
just collected or whatnot, that's usually in pure sifted pumice, it's maybe quarter inch pumice or something. That's in, you know, in a box. Um, but two primary ones, uh, the back 40 that I mentioned uh, with uh, bark and pumice, it's, uh, the bark is actually mixed. There's a little bit of steer manure in it, which gives this long lasting two to three years of very slow release fertilizer. We're still fertilizing, but that's a nice background fertilizer. Um, and those are in like nursery pots and flats and deciduous trees, but also, you know, young atoigawas and things like that that we're playing with from cuttings. Um, it grows a tree really strong. So it's like 80% of this bark steer and then 20% pumice. And that's a really strong mix. Um, and then uh, if it's in a bonsai pot, um, it's going to have akadama and pumice um, in it. I don't use lava. Neither did my teacher Suzuki. Now, lava is fairly, uh, scoria, uh, um, that, that is um, a, a fairly common ingredient um, in Japan and, uh, and, and in the West. Um, you can definitely use it. The, the conifers tend to have a, a much greater ability to manage um, any kind of overdose of um, uh, sort of toxic toxicity from uh, from uh, minerals, but uh, but deciduous have a, a far less ability to do that. And because Suzuki had maybe twenty five percent of his bonsai in Japan uh, were deciduous trees, he he just left the love out entirely. So I I I changed the mix a little bit according to what I'm doing. It might only be thirty percent uh, akadama. Uh, for some pines uh, and the rest is pumice uh, and then I, I cover the top with sphagnum moss um, and I, I, I do layer I, I keep smaller particles on the top um, just to keep an even um, moisture level throughout the pot but a deciduous tree I might include more akadama maybe 50% if I akadama is expensive you know if, I think in a perfect world maybe I'd be using 70% or more um, in Japan there's a couple species that use 100% akadama like beech um, but then they're repotting every two, th three years. It's not like um, it's not like the the compaction becomes a problem uh, if you have a hundred percent. If if you have a a, a rapid uh, repotting cycle. Uh, but anyway, that's what I use. It's really two mixes. It's two mixes, but one of those mixes, it sounds like you're using yeah. a bunch of different percentages. So it sounds like there's several mixes that's right. in one of those mixes. Correct. That's that's correct, according to what I might use. And and, and a moisture-loving conifer, uh, like uh, some of the spruces, uh, uh, hemlock, um, I, I will use kind of a deciduous mix, so maybe 50% akadama. Akadama holds a little more moisture than the pumice does, but... It's surprising what you can grow in pure pumice. You can grow an azalea in pure pumice. It has a lot of porosity and uh, um, uh, pretty good moisture retention, but an incredible amount of oxygen. Um, it's a very porous particle. Uh, roots respire so that so the plant uh, grows stronger. If you use too much pumice, you, your, your plant's going to be too strong. <laughs> One thing I've noticed is that the... Um, uh, the pumice that they use in Japan is much heavier. It's it's much yeah. denser. It's harder. Uh, there's much less gas exchange in it. And the pumice that we have from the Pacific Northwest of the United States uh, is incredibly light. It, some of it can almost float on the surface of the water. It's almost perlite. Um, uh, and, and I find that if you have too much uh, pumice in your mix, your, your plants can grow almost too strong. So it's it's a great soil for you know a collected conifer because it keeps the the original soil mass kind of dry, 
Um, if you leave it in there too long, uh, you, you can get a really strong tree. Um, if you're not careful, <laughs> they don't need an awful lot of fertilizer. What's funny is I have found that I can't make pines turn green if there's too much pumice in the mix or if it's a pumice only mix. I've yes, that's another topic, but I, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've put a, a solid inch of fertilizer on top of pumice mixes and I still can't turn the pines green. And so <laughs> I, I use a ton of pumice as well and uh-huh. really prefer yeah. our domestic pumice over the Japanese stuff. It's mm-hmm. the Japanese pumice is, uh, Although a better color, it's it's too round. Mm, it's gray. It's, it doesn't have the irregularity as much as ours does. But yeah, I can't keep mm. pines green in it, and I don't know what I'm doing wrong. It's an but. interesting comment. I've noticed that too, and I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm on the verge of switching up what I'm doing too. It, it, it might be the iron in the in the akadama, or I, I don't really know what what, what the greening is. Uh, if there's a lack of uh, I don't know magnesium, I and mean, magnesium is a important molecule in the in the um, uh, uh, for chlorophyll, um, you know, when the you element in, in the molecule of chlorophyll. Sorry, yeah. When you were in Japan, did you ever deal with mm-hmm. trees that were potted in what I think of as one of the most common mixes from all the growers down in Shikoku? The uh, and I don't know if you know what I'm referring to, but a lot of the pine growers down there or conifer growers use 100% sand. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's a, uh, and I don't in, remember if that's the Kawasuna or the Yamasuna, but the, right, right. whether the trees are in the ground or in containers, they use our closest equivalent would be 100% decomposed granite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know some growers who use that here uh, in the West as well, uh, granite. Uh, I've never actually had any of that Japanese soil in my hand, but, it, it, uh, but you're saying it's, it's a lot like... Uh, lot like decomposed granite uh, it's uh, yeah it's those sharper squared yeah exactly tiny bit, bit of microprosity not much to speak of but just they right, control the right. moisture by particle size it's a hot and humid part of right. japan so they're yeah. getting yeah. less cold in winter so the heat sinks less of an issue they're getting a ton of heat and humidity and rain in the summer and it's not right. holding on to extra moisture, but I was shocked to see it in the ground and in containers and no one can say those trees aren't healthy hundred sure. percent sand yeah, yeah, and a particular kind of sand. I, I think you'd have less good luck if you use pure quartz. Um, yeah. But then, you know, as you said, soil size is critical. Um, uh, that 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 helps a lot because it introduces oxygen. Um, sand is a funny particle. Uh, you it, it, on the small size, it's one of the very best ways to start a cutting. Uh, so. Uh, because as uh, I was talking about this with Gary Wood and, and he said, one of the, the, the primary things it offers is water. And I never thought of that, but it's absolutely accurate because if you have a small size particle of sand, it has a lot of capillarity. And so you start your cutting in it. But then interestingly, as Gary mentioned, after several weeks, pretty soon you're cutting that's in a different kind of, um, uh, of media uh, many different kinds of media can have organic and volcanic is going to overtake the one in sand because those offer a lot of other things. They offer yep. more nutrition and more air. Important. The air is crucial. So it's really interesting. It's, it's like, it, it's like uh, a bunch of runners. So if, if you imagine like if you've got your soil media up, you know, at the starting line and one of them is fine sand and the others are your volcanic media and your organic media and whatever. And the sand is going to take off like a bullet. 
and it's going to tire itself out. And, and these others are going to pass it after about 100 yards. They're going to whip around and they're going to win the 400. Um, and so this is why I think uh, when you make your black pine cuttings, you know, these old photographs of these little lines, I mean, it looks like these beautiful little uh, cultivated rows, you know, <laughs> in a flat. Um, and you have all these little black pine uh, seedling cuttings stuck in pure sand. And then surrounding that is normal bonsai soil. So the roots grow through the sand. They have this great start. And then they hit the, the other soil where they get more oxygen and more nutrition. And bam, the thing is off and running. So it's like it, it has that great first 100 meters. And then the roots are into these, these other soil mixes. And, and it continues to whip around the, the track. And it, it, and it flat out wins um, the race. <laughs> Yeah, anyway. <laughs> that's exactly what I've seen. And a sidebar to that is when I've repotted those seedling cuttings out of the four inch pot with a little pocket of sand in the middle, there will be two things going on in that pocket of sand. There will be zero roots inside there and right. it'll usually be a dry brick. The water just goes right around it and it because it can flow so easily <laughs> through the larger particles of whatever yes. it is we're using, whether bark or pumice or lava. And it, uh, right, right. it really does help you out of the gates. And that's about it. Yeah. It's funny stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But once you increase the size of it, as, and, and of course, it's a little bit of a different particle in Japan, you know, it's a bit more like decomposed granite, which is much better than pure quartz. Um, yeah. uh, once you increase the size of it, you're increasing your, your oxygen. Um, yeah. And then you can, you can grow a lot of things in it. It's a little bit of a heat sink, uh, sink though. I mean, it's really going to hold on to your, your heat in the summer, but yeah, you know, conifers like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, they like some some amount of it. Uh, you know, you can really increase uh, root growth. So I, you know, it depends about where you live. It depends about how you're managing, how you're watering, how you're fertilizing, and it's surprising what you can use. You can use all kinds of things to grow bonsai, uh, and those, of course, those aren't bonsai. They're you know they're growing things on. Um, but um, the ones in Japan that you're talking about, these pines. Yeah, and a heat sink would probably be a good thing for me because unlike so much of the country where there's high humidity yeah. and the temperatures may not change yeah. a lot between day and night, I get right. cold nights where I live. And so right. maybe I'd get a lot happier roots if yeah, I could preserve more of the day's heat at night. Yeah, throw that pumice out. Yeah, <laughs> pumice I've, is an insulator. <laughs> yeah, I've used a lot of decomposed granite and mixes over the years, and uh, I, I'm curious How's to it use been? it again. Uh, yeah, I've, get back I've, to us on that. I'm curious. I've never seen any untoward results from it, and so yeah, other than yeah. it's heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen uh, the backcountry guys, um, backcountry bonsai, Steve Varland. And, and Dan, I'm going to mangle his last name. I'm sorry. Dan W. We call you Dan W. <laughs> um, uh, uh, the, some of the first uh, plants I, I got for them were, were in 100% decomposed granite, and they were great. I mean, the box weighed. I needed help to pick up the box, but, I mean, those guys are strong. They, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the trees were great. You know, they were healthy. They, you know, there were no problems with the roots when we, when we took them out. And uh, I know others, including Larry Jackal, uh, in the Denver area, use uh, decomposed granite, and others have. Um, All over Southern California, a lot you know, of the, Northern California, a lot of the old school yeah. was using a lot of decomposed granite yeah. for junipers and pines and whatnot. Yeah, and it's cheap. I mean, yep. you know, this is local stuff. Yeah, yep. it might, might be not so cheap, you know, if you live in Illinois, where there isn't any granite. But, um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> so... Uh, you, we'd, weather had come up along the way in there, and it made me want to mention a weather-related thing in climate because, you know, 
we have nominal seasons in the Bay Area and everyone's thinking about, you know, <laughs> these concepts of dormancy and they're more intellectual mm -hmm. concepts where I live. And I'm curious, what would you tell someone who's looking to use a refrigerator either for evenings or oh, wow. winter cooling? Oh, wow. Yeah, this is something I have. I've never had a client work with that. I've never lived in a climate like you're talking about. Even when I lived in Arizona, I was living up uh, kind of in the mountains, really. And we had cool nights. So I didn't have to do that. But um, I think light would be the thing that I would be uh, curious to investigate um, with that question. Uh, so so we have the cooling, right? We have the uh, we have the refrigerator idea. Um, several things come to mind. One is ventilation. Um, uh, you don't want what we have to store, you know, our lettuce uh, for bonsai because eventually we're going to get molds in there. Um, so that one, you're going to need fans. You're going to need some way of venting out the humidity. And then light is the other one because um, it, unless it's fully dormant, um, most plants need some amount of light. Uh, so even if you're, you know, in the high 30s or something, a plants, plant, plant might might need a little something. Uh, when I lived in upstate New York, I, uh, uh, it was incredibly cold uh, when I was in graduate school up there. Uh, I was a potter years ago, uh, and that's what I was doing up there. But anyway, I had this small bonsai collection. I would dig a pit, and I would throw, throw the trees in there. And then I would cover it with, uh, with plywood. So they were like they were in darkness uh, forever, but it was incredibly cold. The, 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 the pots were frozen for days on end. I, you know, I, I did a, a lot of things wrong. It's not that pots can't freeze if, if they're bonsai, if it's a, it's a hardy plant and, and uh, the, the dormancy cascade is started and you're not you know, in the middle of summer when this happens. But uh, uh, if, um, uh, if it stays frozen for a long time, it can be a, a, a bit of a problem for hydration. To the plant uh, and so I'm, I'm just uh, running through some of the things that I've gone through to, for anybody who's, who's <laughs> thinking about refrigerating their plant um, uh, to, to, to maybe keep in mind um, but uh, but the problem is that then when they begin to wake up in the spring they're growing in the darkness so so that's where light would come into into play your your, your photo period and your intensity of light those are the questions that I, I, I think you would want to do some experimentation around um, uh, I know a couple people that have used them to really good effect, and um, oh, really? I've literally been thinking about it lately to the degree of, apart from the expense, like what's the carbon footprint of where your municipality gets their electricity? Because, yeah, right. If it's uh, hydro, you're good. Yeah, or if you have solar or something <laughs> or like solar, that. Solar, yeah. Because it's, <laughs> right. it's interesting whether to provide the nighttime cooling yeah. that's so helpful uh -huh. to people where it doesn't uh -huh. cool down at night, or to provide some actual chill time. I think the lowest recorded temperature yeah. Alameda's had this year was, it was either 30 or 33, somewhere in that neighborhood, and that was one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah, I'm, yeah. I cannot offer chilling hours here, and I often mm. will send trees up to a friend who lives in the foothills who can overwinter yeah. uh, some of the trees that appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is an important uh, question. There is a, a chapter in Bonsai Heresy where uh, I talk about uh, an adventure I uh, had with a client of mine down in LA um, that was very close to the coast. 
and uh, his temperate trees were failing uh, after a few years. For one or two years, he did fine. Then it started failing. And we thought, oh, it must be just you know the, the winter cooling. That's a, a real problem. And, and then we brought them up north in the middle of the growing season. We brought them up to Oregon, all these trees that were failing down there. We had things like uh, cryptomeria and quince. Um, and, um, and we brought them up. And I think it was May when we brought them up. And in, within one or two months, they looked like different trees. I mean, they had wow. completely different energy, and it totally threw that idea into the wastebasket, that, that winter cold was the only thing that these plants needed. Obviously, there was something else going on there. And I did offer an idea in that chapter. Uh, I don't know if it's the full story. I think uh, I, I talked with uh, Linda Chalker-Scott, uh, who is a horticulturalist. I interviewed her. And uh, in that interview, I got the sense that there are a lot of complex things at play here and that it might not be so simple. When it, the idea that I threw out was uh, uh, of this sort of uh, day length, um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, 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 day to night chill. Uh, so not seasonal chill, but daily chill. How, how far is the drop from daytime to nighttime temperature? And the best idea I could come up with is, is, is that it just wasn't enough of a, of a bump down in LA. Whereas in Oregon, we had, we had more, it wasn't a lot. It was only like five degrees, but it seemed to be enough. And you wouldn't think that'd be enough, but until you start to think about desert climates where that, that temperature swing is like 50 degrees and you think, Oh, well then the trees must be so much healthier than if this is an important thing, but other things are there in play where other stresses come, come in. So, uh, so there's a lot going on here. She, Linda talked about uh, them trying to grow apple crops down in Taiwan, which is a, <sighs> you know, much of the country is tropical. And the, the failure of that, I mean, they just couldn't create the kind of vigor that they could create in climates that had a distinct day to night cooling. Um, so it's a very interesting topic. And um, I, uh, I don't think that's the end of that. <laughs> I don't think that chapter, you know, gave a, <laughs> a definitive answer, but I, 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 I did enjoy telling the story of uh, sharing the story of, of, uh, of, well, gosh, maybe, it, maybe it isn't just winter chill. Maybe there's more to it. Um, uh, I think but the chapter I, I, did that's a, not to say winter chilling wouldn't help. I, I think it does uh, a lot. Yeah. The chapter did a fantastic job of suggesting, because you point out the three different kinds of dormancy, that we know of that people have researched and that they each have their different triggers and that each can protect against mm. different kinds of harm that a tree could suffer if it grows at the wrong time. It's right. monitoring, you know, temperature, it's monitoring light mm -hmm. and it's monitoring these more frequent periodic changes and that each mm -hmm. one can provide Timing. different kinds of protection and mm -hmm. that there are also different levels of dormancy and that at deeper levels of dormancy, trees are much stronger against those radical changes. And so the natural yes. system, what you did a good job of, of uh, telling us is that it's complex and that it's pretty darn <laughs> practical. It, yeah, yeah, right. It has, it has real, real life uh, uh, issues. You know, one thing, and this is segue into another chapter, which for me was a really interesting one to research because I didn't really know the answer to it. And there were several that I'll, I'll share. Uh, but this one I'm thinking about is about root hardiness. Um, yes. And that one, 
I hope that one will be uh, useful to people because it sure was for me. I mean, when I was starting out in bonsai, I'd, I, I would just take the, the hardiness of, of the tree as you found in your, your garden book, uh, you know, zone five. Great. I can grow these trees. I can't grow those trees. Um, but unfortunately, that's, that's, that's really uh, far away from reality because uh, the, the garden book is assuming the trees in the ground. Whereas bonsai, we have something in a pot that, that is influenced by the ambient temperature. And roots are, are much more susceptible to cold than tops by tens of degrees, um, talking in Fahrenheit. So um, that, was a, that was a fun chapter. <laughs> um, and one of the things I wanted to talk about in this, so it, it, is that at the end of that chapter, we begin to uh, talk about hardiness. And you made me think of the example of black pine as compared with white pine. And we've always been taught that Japanese white pine is much hardier than Japanese black pine. And it's true, but only in part, because if you look up the hardiness of those two plants, Japanese black pine, Japanese white pine, they're identical. But if you look at how that works in practice, it isn't quite true. And so what this clues us in is that the Japanese white pine is growing in a really cold environment and the triggers for full dormancy, the full dormancy cascade that ends up in full dormancy um, using these three kinds of dormancy that Jonas just mentioned, um, that it's working differently for that plant than the Japanese black pine, which is from a lower elevation and probably isn't reading the same signals. And so it is becoming damaged at lower temperatures in the fall or the spring when the white pine is not. So even though those two are, you know, the same zone hardiness, they actually in the real world, um, especially when grown out of their natural environment, can become damaged by the environment that we're living in. Yeah, and that's a fascinating example. I think the two uh, degrees are you have uh, 10 degrees and negative 20 degrees are the, uh, right. are the watch temperatures on them. And we all know based on where they yeah, grow yeah. in nature, way high up in the mountains for white pines along the ocean for black pines. And that's making a pretty strong case for how dormancy can offer some radical protection. Yeah. But that's only half yeah. of it because that's the top of the tree mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. the bottom of the tree, which is right. why I, I've recommended the book right. just for that one chapter. And hmm. just to spell it out for those who haven't seen it, um, Michael has listed a chart based on research that shows when what temperatures at which we can expect the top of a tree to die or what temperatures we can expect the roots to die for a given species popularly grown as bonsai. And it is the one really easily easy to use index for that information that, that's out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that came out of OSU, uh, Oregon State University, and um, was researched done by a couple of uh, folks there. Um, it wasn't published, it was, uh, so this might actually be the first time it was in print, but um, uh, I was allowed to use that information from uh, actually uh, Izali Ministry, um, uh, Joe Harris uh, helped me uh, a lot with this. We had some really interesting conversations about how their um, uh, their, their uh, uh, temperature uh, caps and, and bottoms of, of what they were growing and how over the years they adjusted those according to what they were actually seeing in terms of their winter kill. Um, uh, and he made the point um, that um, that that study, which I have in uh, in Bonsai Heresy, the the list that Jonas is talking about, 
um, is uh, assumed to be in nursery containers and bonsai uh, are in much smaller containers really um, than that uh, proportionally. And so, so Joe Harris recommends a much more conservative uh, number. And I, I did uh, uh, adjust those um, with, um, uh, with what Isley uh, uses uh, for their, uh, for their numbers, not their number crunching. It all comes down to number crunching this stuff. Yeah. Anyway, it was a fun chapter to, to read. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Jonas. Um, it, it was a fun one to, uh, uh to dig into. Um, there, there were a few, uh, of, of those that surprised me. I think one of the most interesting stories to relate was one that I didn't know, which was about B1, the, uh, the growth, mm. Uh, a supposed growth enhancer B1, um, which I'd always been a little suspicious of, but I really didn't know the answer to this. And it took me a long time to figure out uh, why this thing that was sold by millions of companies uh, and has made so much money over the decades um, doesn't actually work. <laughs> and I, I, I feel so hesitant to say that, but, it, um, but I ended up having to purchase an article um, in in uh, a scholarly journal uh, that gave the story of this, and I, I, I related in, in in the book, but in brief, uh, this goes all the way back to the to the late '30s, where uh, there was a researcher who thought he had discovered a new hormone, and unfortunately, this got a very small little billing in Better Homes and Gardens magazine, um, which uh, created a bit of excitement. And then the next year, there was a several page article featuring this guy and what he was studying. And it became this huge rage immediately. And unfortunately, the guy within a year or two had disproven his initial assumptions, but that never got into the news. <laughs> so, so here we have this huge group and you know, th these companies would be selling B1 forever because everybody's talking about it and that, you know, yep. that it's a growth enhancer and it created, uh, for those that aren't familiar with it. Wonderful. B1 uh, is supposedly uh, a product that helps uh, reduce uh, transplanting stress. Um, so you soak your roots in it or something like that, but it's a, it's a very, it's a wonderful story. Snake oil. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great story. And there's a lot of detail in, in the chapter. It was fun to discover that one. <laughs> I think we should take a short break. <laughs> yeah. So we can take a little break to hear from I, our I sponsor if you that. need be John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to lose some blood sugar. So let me, uh, we can keep talking if you want, but I want to. Yeah, go for it. I have, I think, just uh, two more technical questions and then the book questions. That's it. Do you ever return home from a long trip to the store to find your bonsai wilted beyond repair? Do your trees not look as green as they should? Have your accent plants never looked as nice as the ones you see on Instagram? Maybe it's time to try dihydrogen monoxide. Dihydrogen monoxide is proven to increase the uptake of nutrients, help reduce stress, keep your plants hydrated longer, and much more. You might not know that professionals around the world use dihydrogen monoxide multiple times a day to keep their trees looking best. It is a largely an unknown secret that we at Bonsai Wire are bringing into the light. We're excited to announce an exclusive partnership with the makers of dihydrogen monoxide. Every bottle sold off of our website comes with a money back guarantee. If your trees do not look better, stronger, and happier within hours of using our product, we'll send your money back, no questions asked. Don't delay. Go to bonsaiwire.com slash products and enter the code WIRE to receive a free bottle for a friend with every purchase while supplies last. 
Again, that's bonsaiwire.com slash products. Enter the code WIRE. Thank you for your support. Welcome back. Thank you for that. Uh, next question. What watering advice do you have for someone who goes to work in the morning, comes back in the evening, and has no more than two opportunities to provide H2O for their trees? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a, a really um, a situation so many find themselves in. Um, and there's several ways you can handle it. Uh, some people do um, increase uh, water holding uh, particle in their soil. They use a little more moss on top. Um, they might position their plants a little bit so that uh, during the, uh, the the heat of the day, there's uh, a, a bit more shade. Uh, but but still, hydration in the middle of the day, if, especially if, if uh, one lives in a really hot climate, um, that uh, th that can suggest uh, sort of alternative watering. Uh, so although in the book I, I, I hit automatic watering systems pretty hard, this is one situation where it, it could really give an advantage. So either kind of a drip line or a or kind of a, a spray system that that, that are used. Uh, both of those are used in nursery situations. They can give your your more water loving plants, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the the edge that they might really need in the middle of the day when it's, when, it, when it's hotter. Um, so that's something to consider. Uh, also mist systems can, uh, if your water quality is really good, uh, can cool down uh, areas uh, during the hot part of the day, you can put them on a timer maybe. Um, that can also reduce the need for, um, for water in the pot. Yeah. Do you have some suggestions <clears throat> for things to do kind of mid-season short of doing the full investment that can maybe tide someone over until the next year when they can put in a system or uh, change the soil or do anything? Yeah, bigger pots. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, things um, you can do middle of the season. <laughs> like say it's July and uh, someone's looking for something. Yeah. Um, you know, shade cloth is probably your, 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 uh, your, your biggest ambient temperature um, benefactor. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I think these... Um, uh, these alternative hydration methods could be could be done mid-season, uh, but um, yeah, it's true. Taking something out of a pot and putting it into a bigger one, or that you can do that with some plants. Uh, other pot configurations make that really really challenging. Mm -hmm. um, you, you you could I don't know if you could, you could hire somebody for that one season, you know, for the for the, uh, the the middle of the day watering. That's that's always tricky to to involve our, our family members uh, in these activities. Uh, they might do so grudgingly, or if you're lucky, they might love it. Uh, but um, that's worked for many people. Um, yeah, it, it's a it's a very tricky dance. The the middle of the day water and in the middle of the growing season, the the real high heat uh, time, uh, shade will help you a lot. Yeah, even just moving it to another part of the garden can make a big exactly. difference. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Micro positioning. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, time for a selfish selfish question which really stems from a discussion you have in chapter 23 but when you're using an injector system to fertilize mm. how do you manage trees that have different fertilizer needs oh yeah 
I'm just curious how you've dealt with that in your garden. I know what it's been like for question. me, but I'd love yeah. to know what the Cretaceous garden's been doing. Good memory, that, which isn't mine. I mean, I have an apprentice with a great memory. <laughs> um, so, so, so Jonas is pointing to a problem of using an injector system, which we have been using in my backyard for a few years. And that's a long story why we're doing that. And I, I would prefer to use cakes on the surface, but I have some trouble using those uh, functionally. But, uh, but the problem with the injector system is that you can water your whole yard with an even amount of fertilizer and half the trees get less than they want and half the trees get more than they want. And then you start seeing aesthetic reactions to that. I don't like that. So uh, the problem uh, is that, and then the correction is either to have somebody with a remarkable memory like uh, Andrew or John who've managed to, to remember what they did last week and do it differently this week, uh, what they hit with this last week and uh, to change it up. Uh, so you can do that. Um, you can you can schedule uh, different dilutions. You know, this week we're doing this. This week we're doing that. Um, well, how do you do the two trees on the bench that are sitting next to each other with different needs? I was just going to put that uh, up there. Okay. I, you create <laughs> a different cluster of trees on different benches. Uh, so you separate them according to their fertilizer needs, uh, which you know can complicate things because. We have different needs in both watering and fertilizing for even the same species of plant, you know, just yeah. different individuals. So it can look like the yard that you don't want. <laughs> uh, so it, it can look confusing uh, to anybody but the person who's watering and fertilizing. So that maybe not the best solution if we want our yards to look beautiful. Well, so do you just water the whole garden twice, once with the fertilizer on, once with the fertilizer off? That's the part that's getting to me is I have a decandled yeah. pine next to a non-decandled pine exactly. and I have to water my entire garden twice exactly. or I hit every other tree exactly. with fertilizer, then I turn it exactly. off and I hit every other tree. Right. Have you come up with a so, better solution than that? No. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think I think honestly that that slow release fertilizers are the answer to all our bad dreams. Uh and and this is uh th this is where um the tradition has the gold, really. These slow release organic cakes that you apply to the surface and then a little every time you water a little bit trickles in and a little bit trickles out. It's hard to over fertilize, uh it's hard to under fertilize. Um I, I was surprised uh, recently, uh, one of my clients um, did a soil test of one of his trees and we discovered that the mineral content, it's really important minerals, things like nitrogen and calcium and things that are like macronutrients were at critically low levels. And we realized wow. that even though he was fertilizing every week, either with fish emulsion or Dynagro, uh, which are these nice mild uh, organic and inorganic fertilizers, he had almost nothing there and, and we saw some weird i mean the trees you know the color wasn't so great and um uh we weren't getting you know the, the elm would drop its leaves halfway through the year and it was just it was weird we i, I couldn't explain what was going on there until we did the soil test and we like oh so uh, if you can't use cakes if you have dogs that that love them or um I, I used to have a student lived on a houseboat and the seagulls would snatch them. Um, <laughs> uh, rats can go after them. Uh, raccoons. I mean, they're, they're, uh, everybody loves a fertilizer cake. So if you can't use them, maybe, uh, you know, the, the liquid solution is, is one option, but I, I'm seriously starting to consider pelletized um, 
because I, I have trouble using the cakes as well, um, but, uh, but the little pellets like Osmocote or Apex or something like that. And I don't like that solution because it's hard to remove it when you don't want it. They yeah. float, they, they go away. Um, but on the other hand, they give this little amount of fertilizer every time. And then you can program, okay, how much does this particular specimen require? It's just like putting cakes on. You can, yep. uh, with the cakes, it's great because you can see it and you can remove it. The, the, the problem with the, <laughs> with the, uh, with the pelletized solution, uh, again, these are chemical and we're going to get to another problem with those in just a second or possible problem. Uh, but you, you, you can't remove them and they float away and they, you know, you, it's hard to see what you have there. Uh, but it, it has the advantage of the slow release, which I think is a really good thing uh, for bonsai because we water so much. If you're in a rainy climate, you're also going to flush things out. Um, but, uh, uh, but at least you can individual to individual give at that moment in time, you can give uh, uh, an appropriate amount of fertilizer according to your goals with that tree. Um, and that, uh, that will retain its effectiveness for some months. And that's a great thing. Um, that's a really, really great thing. So I was going to mention a problem. So, and, and I don't know if this is a problem. This is one of these, one of these uh, rumors that I've heard for two decades, you know, uh, about uh, the, uh, uh, the fact that, <laughs> uh, that uh, a uh, chemical fertilizer, I've been using this term interchangeably with inorganic, both of them are, are incorrect. But, but anyway, we won't go into that. Um, but uh, using a chemical fertilizer uh, on bonsai will create uh, brittle branches. I have no idea if this is true or not. Um, and I would love somebody to jump up and do some uh, citizen science experiment that will show us um, whether certain trees actually become more brittle. Because if they do, we might still be able to use chemical fertilizers, maybe during a time of the year like fall when they're not putting down the kind of tissues that create brittleness. I don't know the answer to that question either. Um, so uh, that, you know, the, there's a bunch of questions in there that I would really love answered. Uh, but some of, these, some of these are fairly mild, you know, they don't have super high numbers. You can control the amount given your scatter um, percentage. Uh, it, I think it's a real strong option. I know Peter T uses Osmocote. Um, I know Boone was using, I think, Apex for a while. And, you know, trees look greener. Uh, but I mean, greenness isn't everything, but it, <laughs> it's part of health. <laughs> it's a good start. <laughs> it's a good start, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much exactly where you are about the attitudes toward liquid fertilizer. Really, really frustrating to try to get it right. The dry on the surface just solves so many problems. Yeah. Mm. Yes, it does. Well, thank you. We'll just have to continue uh, inventing that. And we're both so. all ears. If any of you have some awesome suggestions yes. for us, let us yes, know. Please. <laughs> Well, I want to talk about the book itself a little bit. Um, tell me about yeah. the Bonsai Heresy team. Where I, it could have just been you that was typesetting this and hand printing it all and selling it yourself, but I'm going to guess there was something <laughs> more to it than that. Yeah, thankfully, I had I had enough on my hands uh, <laughs> writing this thing and double tripping, tri triple checking myself. I, writing a technical book is a is a horror. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, at least it's for me because I'm not built that way, but we had a great team. Uh, I, I do want to give a shout out to the people who put their hearts into this one. It was, it, it was definitely a, a labor of love for me and it, it ended up being something that other people got really invested with. And I, uh, I, I want to start with Wayne, uh, Wayne Shea, uh, who, uh, runs, uh, Stone Lantern, where you can find Bonsai Heresy. He's, this is the only distributor of the book. You can't go on Amazon and find it. 
but Wayne, uh, we've had an association for quite a while. He, he carries uh, Post Dated, which is my first book, uh, The Schooling of an Irreverent Bonsai Monk. Uh, that was my anecdotal uh, report of the madness of being an apprentice in Japan, published in 2008. And he was selling that. And we really enjoyed working with one another. And uh, I self-published that book. Uh, so I would package up a certain number of books and send it to him. And I still do that. Um, and with Heresy, he wanted to be a little more involved. He, he, he asked me if we wanted to team up on it. And I said I, I was really, um, really um, clear that I wanted to retain uh, my rights as a self-publisher. And, uh, and he offered to cover the cost of printing it. And I had to write him back. I said, let me get this straight. I, uh, we, I'm a self-publisher <laughs> and you're a public and you're going <laughs> to... Uh, I'm very proud of our association. I, I talk with many people in the publishing industry and I told them this story and they've never even heard of a story like this. So I, I really am honored by the trust that Wayne had in me and in the book. Um, and I've uh, really enjoyed that. Uh, also just uh, Sergio was incredible to work with. Sergio Kwan, many of you might know him, uh, great bonsai artist. Uh, I think he appeared in, in uh, Bill Lavanis' magazine recently. Great, mm -hmm. great bonsai artist. He's an animator. He works for Nickelodeon. And I approached him uh, very early on uh, about this, uh, that, that I, I didn't want to use photography. I wanted to use several ironic images, uh, really colorful, like the opposite of wabi-sabi. And he loved the idea, you know, it was so, but I had no idea what it was going to look like. I mean, I didn't even know Sergio, actually. We had never actually met. He was, uh, he was a friend of Andrew's and uh, uh, my uh, past apprentice. And so he, he hooked us up and uh, Sergio and I started talking and it, it was a, it was a really fun association. I still remember the day I, I got my, my first color illustration. Um, up to that point, I had, I still couldn't, I couldn't see it. And I, I got, I remember I took a, a, an hour off of work and just took a walk. I was so excited. I, mean, <laughs> it's just, I could finally see the book um, because it was, it was a risk. I mean, that the book uses entirely word images rather than photographic images in order to uh, to share um, uh, ideas and concepts. Uh, so it was tricky. Um, uh, so I'm glad Sergio did that. Also, uh, Mary Russell, although technically she was my copy editor, she was so much more than that. And many of you might know Rare, uh, Mary. She lives up in the uh, um, uh, Twin Cities uh, area. Uh, she read some of the early, early drafts, which were dreadful. And she was so supportive and really helpful in restructuring uh, the book from the horror that it was uh, into something that, that people might actually want to read. <laughs> she was great. She also worked on post-dated. Um, uh, so several of these, even, even uh, Jennifer Omner, the book designer, she designed uh, post-dated um, and did the interior design of this one. Laura Nelson was proofreader. Uh, she was a great member of the team. Uh, Leah Eads, uh, John's wife, um, uh, actually created a font for the cover and the spine of Bonsai Heresy. I couldn't believe what she did. It was unbelievable. <laughs> she was amazing. And then 10 content editors who read the early drafts and, and, and added so much to this book. That, that was amazing. And then it was kind of a family affair as well. My mother did the bibliography. She has a background in, in, in libraries and uh, was able to to hunt down some rare facts and just did an amazing, amazing job with that. And then I took a stab at this as well. I, I did the index, which was a lot of fun. And, and um, if you enjoyed the humor in Bonsai Heresy, 
read the index. I, I don't think most of us read indexes, but I tried to continue that through the, <laughs> through the index. So anyway, uh, it, it was a super, uh, super team. I really, really had a lot of fun and I was uh, uh, happy with the, the product we came up with. It's pretty fantastic. And it's not the kind of thing you expect when you pick up a bonsai book off the shelf. There are just a lot of touches that you would just not expect. And probably the biggest one of those is the fact that it is illustrated rather than adorned with photographs. And so say more about the decision to issue photos for the oh, yeah. uh, word yeah. images or, or colorful illustrations you ended up using. Okay. So the, the word images, it, it was actually, it was a bit of a, um, I, I was playing. I, <laughs> I mean, writing for me for a while now has been sort of like deep play, you know, so like what we do when we're not working, <laughs> you know, we have, uh, we have a hobby that we, <laughs> that, that we go as deep or as, as interested in as, as we might be in our careers, but it, it's something completely different in a way to get away from it. Even though I was writing about, uh, about bonsai, I wanted to do it in a way that was, uh, that, that I hoped would be a sneakier way to, to, to get to the heart of the matter. And I felt that with images, we're, we're, we're going to retain the same triggers that we tend to have with all the other great bonsai books that we have out there that, um, you know, especially inspiration and things like that. Um, uh, there, there's wonderful photographic um, inspiration books our world is replete with them and they're great instagram is facebook you know we we're, we have so much of that and yet my sense was that our, our bonsai really weren't improving even though we had you know great um examples which we didn't have when i first started bonsai uh and yet when i first started bonsai we had all these problems that we set <laughs> and we passed around and and so we we shared them to the point that we got so familiar with them that i felt like i didn't need images to describe these things these are things that so many people who read this book are going to recognize and and so it, although it was a challenge to not use photographs i i that was the intention was to use it, the imagery that was going to be there was going to be as ironic as the text or as ironic as a chapter titles, which are in uh, quotation marks, which I mean the opposite of, of what this myth mm -hmm. is. Um, and, and so Sergio got that immediately. Uh, he's a humorist. He's such a funny, a funny visual artist that he took the only thing, I mean, he came up with all of these crazy visual ideas <laughs> and they would make me laugh out loud. Uh, but I, uh, uh, the only thing, only input I had was on the cover. That was that was my idea, the match. But everything else was his, and, and we, all the thing, only thing we agreed on was which chapter to illustrate. And then he went off, and I didn't hear from him for a month or something. And then he would come back with some of these illustrations, and they were hilarious. Um, but they were ironic, and that and that was my point. So so his uh, he would take the chapter title, and he and then he would he would fit into it what I actually believe is going on, uh, uh, which is the opposite of the chapter titles. So the illustrations are ironic. Um, so anyway, it was, I mean, it was a risk. The whole thing was a risk. I had no idea if it would work. <laughs> um, but that's the part of deep play that I really enjoy about writing. Um, writing is, uh, it has been so much fun for me. I, I, uh, I didn't really start writing until I started keeping a journal in Japan when I was an apprentice. And I, I've written on and off since then. And then my blog, uh, the weekly writing that I do for the blog um, has transformed it, I think, a little, a little bit. 
um, uh, I don't have your background, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, so I had to, I had to kind of teach myself the hard way. Uh, but I really enjoy writing um, really early in the morning. I usually get up uh, before it's light, and I write for one or two hours. Um, I feel that I feel that we're more innocent then. You know, we're not polluted mm. by the day. And um, I discovered uh, much later that that many professional writers write in the mornings. Um, and maybe that's why, but, but anyway, that's, that's why that, uh, feels, uh, good to me to write in the mornings. I'm really glad that you did it the way you did, because it, like you say, not only gets the focus on the more intellectual concepts and tries to fight the bad words with good words, but it also gave us the gift of having the fun images of the book. It just makes it a fun physical object to work with and, what I find is there are little tiny, you actually have to look at the images closely and that there's funny little jokes embedded in a lot of the images that you just don't catch at first glance. Like there might be a pot decorated with a bikini, for instance. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Sergio uh, sent me a one line email uh, for that one. He says, Michael, can I put a bikini on a bonsai pot? And I immediately I laughed. I mean, that was my initial reaction. I was like, you <laughs> And then, and then I started getting worried. You know, I wrote him back. I was like, yeah, I think this is hilarious, but I don't know. I don't think. And then he wrote me back and said, Michael, we're not, you know, writing a book for kids. And, <laughs> and then I said, yeah, you're right. Okay, just go with it. So anyway, it's, it's kind of embedded in there. It's a little hard to see, but search for that one. That's really good. Yeah. But, but there's another, I mean, it's, <laughs> the images were fun to share and to see people's reactions. I remember when I sent you the cover uh, image and I, I did it. I, I learned, uh, I learned something. I didn't do this again, but I sent it by email. And so you got this big attachment that blew up and unfortunately it didn't show the whole thing. So, uh, for those of you who know, they cover bones of heresy, there's this match and, and there's the head of the match and then there's this huge flame coming off of it. It's very incinerary. And you saw the top of that and not that it was a match, but you saw this little head. It looked like somebody's head was bursting a flame and you were horrified. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, okay, now I'm going to send, you know, a little text image, which will show the whole thing to others to get their response. But I, I do want to thank uh, you, Jonas, for being such a big part of this. This was, um, um, it was so much fun actually to, to uh, hunt down some of these things. Some of the, some of the bigger ones were, were the ones around uh, black pine decandling, the, you know, the full story behind that, which I didn't know. And, and you helped me great with it with that. Also the Azalea chapter, there were a lot uh, of details. Uh, there were some people that you knew that, that knew a lot more than I did that, that were uh, about Azaleas uh, that played into that chapter. And then, um, uh, and then the one on fertilizer, that was fascinating to talk with you about and your understanding and knowledge of some of the things that were going on in Japan as well. You played a huge role in this book. And if you are a Jonas fan, uh, there's uh, a number of really great quotes in Bonsai Heresy from Jonas. <laughs> so a lot of people were involved with it. Uh, Joe Harris, too, who lives here in Portland, was a, a real major uh, part of the content team. Oh, just fantastic contributions he provided. Well, actually, on that exact topic, I was curious, were there some discoveries during your research for the book that made you want to dig a lot deeper, maybe beyond what you could fit in the book? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> you know, some of the things were coming up um, as the book was going into publication that yeah. <laughs> I realized were 
what was actually going to be a revision because, you know, like I started with the dentist story, you know, that 50% of what I shared with you is going to be incorrect, but I have no idea what 50% it is. You know, there, there, there's some things in here that I'm sure we're, we're going to have better ideas of in 10, 15 years. So I'll, I'll probably do a revision at some point. There, there were some chapters that I pulled um, that probably won't ever be in Bonsai Heresy. I took them out because I realized that they weren't based on tradition or science and that they were more opinion. Ah. And I have another book I'm working on, which is a collection of essays, and it is definitely opinion. <laughs> mm. And uh, that book is, uh, the working title is Yanking on Needles, and that is a few years out. But um, uh, I, I, I don't have... Um, yeah, not, um, nothing, yeah, forget it. Yeah, John's going to have to cut that one out too. <laughs> A lot of cutting for John this morning. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> anyway, okay, start again. <laughs> or maybe wrap up. We were pretty oh, that one's fine. I was just going to ask, uh, were there any questions you had when working <laughs> on the book to. that you just couldn't find answers to? Oh, wow. Um <clears throat> Let me think. Or you um, thought, here's a good myth. I'll just, oh, wait, I can't find anything. that. Well, yeah, you know, in the growth enhancers, yeah, there were. Uh, I, I looked at uh, several of the products that were offered, some really famous ones. Uh, Super Thrive is one. Uh, the other is uh, HB 101. Um, there's a few backyard things um, and one really small study with uh, uh, Super Thrive and absolutely nothing with HB 101 uh, in terms of, science uh, done on these how effective are these you know that kind of a that kind of a study and uh i, I just had to leave those as question mark i mean uh, I, I i had no idea um the truth is as, as linda chalker scott mentioned this horticulturalist that uh that i uh, interviewed for this she said you know almost all of these uh growth enhancers that are sold for huge bucks uh, for the amount that you get <laughs> Um, they all have nutrients in them, you know, so they, yes. they probably all do something. But the, the real question is, is it worth it? I mean, I mean, here you have, a, well, Super Thrive is a great example. Uh, it, it might be the easiest one to, you know, uh, point to for that one example, because you get like four ounces of it for $12. And, you know, a quarter of a drop, it better do an awful lot for that kind of money. And yeah. yet you, you can buy, you know, a, a, even a non-brand, you know, fertilizer, that's that might well do your tree just as well. Um, so the, 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 at the end of her discussion, she pretty much said, you know, just keep simple and let let nature do its work. Um, uh, you probably don't need most of these. Having said that, there's some very interesting ones. I mean, I think silicon um, was, was a very interesting investigation. There is some research behind that, and that was interesting. Um, seaweed uh, has some um, has some interesting results. Um, I'm very curious with the uh, the uh, the uh, I'm sorry, the, the hormones that are found in them. I think there's cytokine found in them. I remember Peter Warren saying something that he had seen more, more budding on mm. white pine, um, having used uh, seaweed. I, I believe it was seaweed. Anyway, there's some things, there's just some, some trails that I, I didn't go down that I, didn't, I, I, I don't really have any answers for. And for some, there probably, or maybe is some research out there that I just didn't find. You first told me about the book, I think it was 12 years ago. So I knew that this one was percolating oh, through your yeah. mind for a very, very long time. And so I imagine the continued process of following some of these threads will be at least another 12 years. Yeah, probably. At a certain point, you kind of have to kick the kid out of the house. So, you know, I, I just, I had to let it go. And then uh, 
do something else. But, <laughs> but yeah, there, there continues to be percolation. And I would actually, if, if anybody has uh, threads of, of uh, 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 to offer you know, research or something else or, or a disagreement with a chapter or something, please send me an email. I, there will be a revision someday and, and hopefully better, more accurate information. Um, and I will, uh, I will try to include some of that in the next one. I love it. So tell me, why is writing a book hard? <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, having written one, uh, I, I think uh, you, uh, you agree that it is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but why it is, uh, I'm going to ask you that question tomorrow morning uh, when we interview you. Uh, but uh, for, for me, it's work. I, 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 uh, I, I have a lot of fun with it, but, I, but writing a book, you know, the darn thing's going to be published and that's a, it, that's a scary idea. Um, and people are going to actually read what you think. Um, <laughs> and they carry big clubs, you know, I mean, you, you don't want to get something wrong. So they, so they're, especially with a technical book like this, it, it's really challenging. If you're just writing a story, it's a smaller club, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, okay, that's his story. He's, he's a crazy person. But, uh, but if you're, if you're, if you're trying to write something, um, that uh, that you think applies to uh, to a field and 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 is applicable to what many many people do, I found that really hard to do. Uh, uh, even get to the point to think you know I should be doing something like that. So uh, so mm. that you know that that was, that was a bit of a challenge. Yeah, yeah. And then just the production of the book. And you had a very different experience. I want to ask you about this one uh, later. But but you worked with a publisher and you. Um, uh, I'm very curious about what input you had there. Uh, so anyway, we'll, we'll cover that later. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you so much. This was an absolutely fascinating chat and I learned a whole lot from it. It was great fun. Thank you. Thank you. And again, as Michael mentioned, the book Bonsai Heresy is available from Stone Lantern. Uh, very easy to find. And uh, the book is packed with, oh gosh, what are we up to? 300 and... 43 pages, 345 pages, one photograph of most of the author's face, at least one reference in the index to the Starship Enterprise, plenty of images from Sergio, and uh, some bonsai information in between all that. Great. Does that sound about right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I should have had that on the back cover. That's perfect. Oh, man. That was, that was so much fun. Thank you. Great, well, great, you, you made questions. it so easy because you wrote a book that's really fun and easy to talk about. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Thank you for Michael, and we'll talk to you all again soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. The music on today's podcast was brought to you by the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue. Also, the advertisements are fake. Sorry, I'm crunching. It's an apple. Very good apple. Hmm. Well, I'll let you crunch a little bit before I start wow. up again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>